0: The Structural Engineering Channel podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media.
1: Welcome to this episode of the Structural Engineering Channel podcast a podcast focused on helping structural engineering professionals stay up to date on technical trends in the field and to help them succeed in their careers and lives. In this episode, we'll talk to Matthew Corrales, a field technician from the ECS group of companies about low-strength concrete and some of the methods used to test for concrete strength.
0: I'm your co-host, Matt Picardle. I'm a licensed engineer at DCI Engineers practicing on structural projects in California with an undergraduate degree from Cal Poly Pomona and a master's degree in structural engineering from UC San Diego.
1: And I'm your co-host Alexis Clark. I work in Hilti's North American headquarters as the product manager for our chemical anchoring portfolio in the US and Canada. I'm a licensed professional engineer in Texas. I received my bachelor's in civil engineering from the University of Texas at Austin and I'm currently an MBA candidate at Auburn.
0: Before we introduced our guests, the Structural Engineering Channel is a free show and our sponsors help keep it free. So we ask that you please support them. Now we'd like to recognize our sponsor for this episode. Global Software offers the most powerful yet user friendly structural analysis and design software for today's structural engineer. With the general FEA program, RFEM, venture beyond basic box type buildings and into unique multi-material structures instead. The nonlinear FEA program is based on a modular concept so you can create a tailored and affordable package specific to your design projects. The add-on modules include the American, Canadian and other international design standards for not only steel and concrete but also aluminum, wood, cross-laminated timber, glass, tensile fabric, and cable form finding, dynamics, stability, and much more. The direct interfaces with BIM programs, including Revit, Tekla Structures, and AutoCAD, allow for the time saving bidirectional exchange of information with RFEM. Also, experience Drupal's recently released standalone program, RWIN Simulation, which simulates wind flow on all structure types and geometries within a numerical wind tunnel. Integrate wind pressures. Back to the RFEM structure for a complete structural design. For more information, visit www.dlubal.com. That's www.dlubal.com.
1: And now I'd like to introduce our guest for this episode, Matthew Corrales. Matthew attended Northern Virginia Community College, where he received his Associates of Science in Engineering. In 2014, he earned his Bachelor's of Science in Civil Engineering from Virginia Tech. Go Hokies! Mr. Corrales is currently attending George Mason University, working on his master's degree in geotechnical engineering. Matthew began his career in the Mid-Atlantic subsidiary of Engineering Consulting Services, known as ECS, in 2012. Over the next eight years, he has moved to the roles from intern to field engineer, staff project manager, project manager, field services department manager, and field service manager and project engineer. Matthew obtained his engineering license in December of 2020. Mr. Corrales' project experience ranges from residential projects, large industrial and manufacturing facilities, assisted living facilities, roadway improvement projects, and data center construction. In his spare time, Matthew enjoys hiking with his wife and one-year-old child. Now, let's jump into our conversation with Matthew.
0: Matthew, welcome to the show. We briefly introduce you to our guest, earlier on in the show, but in your own words, can you tell our listeners what it is that you do on a daily basis at the ECS group of companies?
2: Maybe I'll start with what ECS started as a geotechnical and construction materials testing firm back in the late 80s. So we provide services from geotechnical drilling and geotechnical reporting for a site plan submission and approval along with some more specialized geotechnical services. And then during construction, we provide special inspections, which is documenting that the contractor is constructing what the design engineer put in the plans. So, on a day to day basis, I manage our field services department, and that includes about 10 technicians and maybe 20 field reports daily for the structural aspects and geotechnical aspects of our local construction projects we're on board with. We'll go out, we'll uh, document bearing conditions for soils, look at soil compaction, retaining wall construction building construction, structural steel connections for steel buildings. Uh, We do post-tensioning and masonry observations, really anything that's governed by the special inspections program in the building department and structural engineers' requirements for the buildings. Right now, I have about 30 active jobs. Not all of them are full-time, but that's a a rough idea of how busy you can get, uh, especially in the summer with the longer business hours. We have technicians going to multiple jobs a day and sending me a dozen or two dozen field reports that I have to work through. We work on projects from high-rises once you get closer into DC, as well as roadway improvements or smaller one-story buildings. Really any type of construction project we've done, ECS has performed some major observations for projects such as the Worth or Capital Crossing, which is putting up a a mid-rise building over the main highway leading into DC. We did the geotechnical work on that, as well as the uh, construction materials testing for during that. That's actually when I was brought on board with ECS, I, I started on that project with their, their drill shafts, friction piles they were putting in down down along the highway in the middle of the city, 24 hours a day working. Took the midnight to noon shift on that. So those friction piles were, I believe, a 10-foot diameter, 130 feet long. But yeah, that was 130 friction piles and a, and a slurry wall. That was a pretty intense project. But that was right before I came into the office and started managing my own projects and construction materials and geotech.
1: A nice little capstone maybe for the field.
2: <laughs> That was getting rough. I mean, i go in at midnight and then i get caught in rush hour traffic on the way home, sometimes at 2 or 3 p.m. if it ran long. But uh, definitely learned a lot. That's, like I guess, all engineers should spend some time in the field to really, uh, you learn the most when you're in the field doing hands-on work. Not that you don't learn stuff in the office, but the most learning happens in the field. It, it gets rough on the, just physically rough doing the work, but definitely vital to understand the whole project
0: process. I'm mostly in the office doing the design work. But when I do get to go on the field, it really is eye-opening. And it looks like from what you're doing, you're out in the field a lot and you're doing observations and you're looking and doing a lot of testing on not just the geotechnical side, but also looks like some of the structural items as well.
2: Correct. Yeah, I am a a geotechnical engineer. The structures portion actually is more my weak suit. We definitely look at the structural items. I I don't do much design, but I can read a structural drawing and, and confirm that it's, you know, constructed correctly in the field. At least that's, that's the goal. That's the importance of us taking the concrete samples that we're going to discuss a bit later is there's a lot of things that can go wrong with, with concreting that it's important to have a third party testing actively to make sure that the truck is placed correctly, consolidated correctly, rebar is correct. It's a little bit hard to fix once the concrete's hardened.
1: Would you mind sharing with me a little bit about why it is so important that we do conduct those concrete tests? And you alluded to the fact that it can be very difficult and, you know, very expensive to fix after the concrete is poured. But what are some of the benefits to doing concrete testing?
2: So maybe I'll start with the typical observation ones we do during a concrete observation, and then I'll go into explaining why each one of those is important. First, uh, the batch placement time of the concrete is important in that As soon as the water hits the cement, that concrete is starting to try to harden, forming bonds. And as it's turned in the truck, all those bonds that would normally have formed and hardened are broken. And so you're losing the final strength of the concrete the longer it's in there turning in the truck. So generally, there's a 90-minute batch to placement time. And batch time is the minute the water hits the truck at the plant. And placement is when it should be out of the truck and in the ground or on the slab or wherever you're placing it. We also look at the temperature. The temperature of the concrete affects the curing time. If it gets too hot, uh, it can dry out and it won't hydrate properly. If it freezes overnight, as it could, this, I guess we're doing this interview in January, you can have an issue with uh, the concrete just breaking up. For instance, if you have a 4,000 PSI concrete that freezes overnight, you'd be lucky to hit 1,000 PSI. So we cast some extra field cylinders that are, are cured kind of in the same conditions as the concrete that's placed. So if they use a concrete blanket over the placement, we'll have our field samples under that blanket with the concrete. And so if our cylinders freeze, it's likely that the concrete that was placed froze. If the cylinders don't freeze and meet the required strength, then it's likely that the concrete placed in the field also met the required strength. So we also look at the viscosity of the concrete, uh, which is referred to as this lump. If you have a plasticizer in there, for instance, if they're pumping it up several stories, you don't want a very thick concrete. It's going to be very difficult to pump up into the required location. Or if it's a large slab, you're not going to be able to pull the truck right up to the slab to place the concrete and you have to pump it over, I don't know, 100 feet of slab. A lot of plasticizer, which raises that, that viscosity or lowers the viscosity, ra- raises the slump. In some places, you want a very low slump. If you're making curb and gutter, as you're placing that, if it's very water, you're not going to be able to form the curb. It's just going to flatten out. But the water-cement ratio in the concrete, you know, is vital to the final strength of the concrete. So there's some slump That's kind of determined by that water cement ratio as well. We'll also check the entrained air content. Generally, in interior mixes, you know, have have no entrained air, zero to 3% by weight or volume, depending on how you want to measure it. And then uh, almost all of the exterior concrete we see has air entrainment, which is usually four to 8%, roughly. And uh, that's for the long term durability of the concrete. As as it freezes and thaws, it needs somewhere for that that flex to go and the water and the pores of the concrete to move. Otherwise, the concrete will start breaking up. So, we were out there testing, documenting temperature, slump, air content, taking our samples.
0: When you're taking the on site testing of the concrete, it's usually like when it's pouring, right? It's not after the concrete's already cured, or is it both that you guys do?
2: Correct. If, if everything goes well and
0: there's no specific
2: additional structural requirement, I mean, because a structural engineer could require that there's cores taken a certain interval after the concrete's hardened. But for most jobs, that's not required. We just take the uh, fluid concrete off the back of the truck, and generally it's just cylinders. There are some projects, for for instance, tilt-up panels, where there's a flexural component to lifting the panel from being poured horizontally on the slab to vertically for a building wall, where we'll take flexural beams. 95% of the jobs we run, we're we're casting cylinders. And there are two curing methods for these cylinders. Briefly mentioned uh, field-cured cylinders, which are required mostly for elevated slabs and for cold-weather concrete. They can be required for other instances if a structural engineer would like to specify that as a requirement. Then we have our laboratory-cured cylinders, which works on finding really the optimal strength of the concrete, where we cast them in the field, they they sit in a curing box at so a maintain temperature overnight, and then they're transported back to our laboratory and put in a curing tank generally the next day. There's some requirements where it's cast the evening before we don't mm-hmm. want to pick it up in the morning. It hasn't enough, enough time to harden. You may damage it while you transport it. But generally next day we'll pick those up and bring them into a curing area with either lime water or mist room. From these cylinders, we'll cure them for the specified times. Generally we'll have a, a break or two at a one week, and then we'll have a full set at twenty-eight days. That is what the design strength of concrete is based on is the twenty-eight day strength. And that will take the average of those breaks and make sure it reaches meet or rather reaches the required design strength. If it doesn't, then we're gonna work into our uh, our additional testing methods that are say moderately destructive to uh, very destructive <laughs> depending on the method there. I guess there isn't a good completely non-destructive test. You're either putting a pit in the concrete or hitting it with a hammer or even cutting into it and taking course.
1: There's a, a lot of really good information there. I have to dig into something really quickly with you, Matthew. So I'm in Texas and Matt is in Southern California and you said cold weather concrete. And I was thinking, what is that? Can you explain to me a little bit, are there any additional steps? I you know, I understand some of the parameters of what cold weather concrete is, but from the perspective of testing concrete, are there any additional steps you have to take to ensure that the concrete you're testing is really mimicking what's happening in the field? Are there any curing compounds? Are there any additional curing steps that you take to ensure that what you're testing really represents what's happening on the job site?
2: This depends on project requirements and the weather. A structural engineer can specify any number of field cylinders or concrete that's not kept at a required temperature while it's cured. Generally, it's limited to when the weather is colder or if it's a more critical item to know the field strength, such as a retaining wall that you want to put a fill behind. You want to make sure you know the in-situ strength of that concrete before you start filling behind it and applying those earth pressures. Or for elevated slabs, before you want to strip formwork, you want to be darn sure that the elevated slab isn't going to collapse. So you'll do field cylinders in that case too to find the actual or a more closely related concrete strength for what was placed. For cold weather, that's governed by ACI as well as project requirements. I would have to look up the exact letter of the code, but it's, it's something along the lines of if the average temperature is below 40 degrees for three straight days, it's, you're now in cold weather concrete and that's when it's for structural items you would want to cast three extra cylinders to be cured in the field to confirm that what was placed and may have frozen overnight did not freeze and has meet, met the required strength for the concrete.
1: The additional steps required for cold-weather concrete would mean that we're pouring more cylinders and then we're leaving them out in the field to be exposed to the same kind of out, you know, environment that the concrete in place has had.
2: Correct. Uh, for instance, uh, for if they're doing a, a wall or an elevated slab, usually they'll put some sort of curing blanket over that looks pretty much like a tarp, but it's a bit thicker. We'll cast our cylinders and put it under the tarp with the concrete that was just placed to mimic the field curing conditions of the concrete that was placed for the structure. And then once they're picked up and brought to our lab, they're left outside. They're not brought into a, a regulated temperature condition. So it's just trying to mimic the local environment for the weather. That's you're, They would see something similar on site where our offices is probably within half an hour of any of the jobs we go to. So the weather at our lab should be similar to what we would expect on site for the curing conditions.
1: Why don't we do that for all concrete, whether it's hot concrete, warm concrete, or cold?
2: It's not required by code. Engineers for more critical items often do require it, like I mentioned, post-tensioned or elevated slabs. They'll want us to be sure for a critical item that we're hitting the strength before removing formwork or doing something that can potentially damage the structure that was placed. Concrete. Shouldn't vary that much if the curing temperatures are, you know, plus or minus 20 degrees, but it's not freezing and it's not baking in the sun without some sort of curing compound to protect it from drying out. It's just not required. I don't think it's that relevant as well. I would have to get into some literature to give you a better answer. But uh, from what I've seen, the the temperature in the field doesn't matter unless you're you're getting close to freezing or you're getting very hot temperatures. But again, the structural engineer often does require field cylinders and sometimes the jurisdiction does as well. For uh, more critical items such as elevated slabs.
1: Definitely. And of course, we have a lot of engineers who, you know, try and follow the letter of the code as best as possible, or you know, whatever the local AHJ requires. I was just thinking theoretically, if we already take some of these measures to expose our cylinders to the most similar weather to what's being experienced on the job site, why wouldn't we want to simulate that at all temperatures, even if there's less of an impact to the concrete's performance at temperatures above 40 degrees? why theoretically
2: wouldn't we just do that?
1: And it would save a lot on uh, on building space if you didn't have to have all those cylinders and doors.
2: The cylinders don't rain on site that much crowding things up, but there is a practical component to the lab cylinders in that there is more of a risk of them getting kicked over if they are left, you know, next to where the concrete was placed than in a curing box out of the way. So there's always that increased risk when you put make some field cylinders and you want to leave them out near where they were just working. You have all the workers walking around and one gets knocked over, it's going to be damaged beyond repair, and you're going to lose that data. And there's a factor of safety built into concrete strength that's a little warmer, a little cooler, and it's slower to cure, then maybe the, the strength changes by a few percent. It's not going to be a huge deal. It's just when you're dealing with trying to strip formwork after three days, there's going to be a wider variability and a greater effect on the field conditions than if you wanted to strip formwork after a week or two.
1: I know that a lot of the work that you've done and one of the reasons we wanted to bring you on to speak with our audience today is because you not only obviously have all of this robust experience in testing, but also uh, knowledge about why sometimes we get concrete results that are lower than what we expected. Can you share with us a little bit, what are some of those main causes for that result?
2: There's always going to be some variability in the concrete placement or the mix of the truck. The issues I have, I've seen are, are pretty rare with concrete that's delivered to the site and there are some statistical acceptance criteria in ACI that'll allow you to uh, kind of accept a truck that's concrete broke slightly low, just saying, Hey, you know, there's, there's a bit of a bell curve on concrete strength and we think it was still mixed correctly. It's just a little bit low. That's generally just for lower strength, less than 5,000 PSI concrete. And then when you have multiple tests, say if you have three consecutive tests, as long as the concrete strength is within 500 PSI of the requirement, and the average of those consecutive tests are above the requirement. You can just accept it as it is per, per an ACI code. There are chances that the incorrect mix was placed. I have seen it where either a valve failed or the, the concrete truck operator turned on the water. And next thing you know, it's coming out with double the slump it should. We try to catch that before it's placed, but sometimes a contractor will elect to place the concrete anyway. In our role, we're not there to reject a truck of concrete or prevent the contractor from doing anything. We just let them know, hey, this is not within the specification. You can decide what you want to do, but if it fails, you may have to rip it all back out. So if the contractor elects to place concrete, that doesn't seem right. We'll sample it, and then you can end up with a low break that they have to deal with later.
0: Obviously, you don't want to reject too many, but in case there are low concrete test results that you've obtained... Could you go into that? So let's say you sampled something, and then the concrete test results are low. What's kind of the procedure that you take in terms of your dealings with the, the contractor and also the structural engineer?
2: So there's a few methods that we can talk about first, where we don't have to actually mess with the concrete. There was that statistical acceptance I noted. That the concrete's slightly low, and within 500 psi of the required strength, and the average of three consecutive sets meets the design strength, you can just call it a, a statistical issue and accept it as is. There's also uh, the, an analysis the structural engineer can perform and say, hey, your concrete's 4,000 psi instead of 5,000, but I've run the numbers and that's acceptable for this location. So that prevents you from having to uh, really rip it out. We also have spare concrete cylinders, which are generally at 56 days. So you we have the preliminary breaks at seven days, then at 28 days or four weeks, we have the actual. ASTM breaks that determine the concrete's final strength or final kind of in quotes there. It'll continue to cure an increase in strength. And we have spare cylinders to be broken at 56 days if the 28 days don't meet the design strength. So we give it another month, break them, and you usually get about 10 or 20% additional strength gain between 28 to 56 days. So you can show with the spare cylinders, hey, you know, we were low at uh, 28 days, but at 56 days, we we're either at or much closer to the required concrete strength. And that'll help us avoid having to actually cut into the concrete and incur additional costs and and repairs to the structure.
0: Yeah, that's definitely the last thing anyone wants to do. That's a good point too. In terms of yeah, if it's too low, and let's say if it's going to be there, we can wait it out, and the structural engineer could do some calculations to make sure it's okay for that. But for those more critical locations that you were talking about, like when they're stripping the deck or a retaining wall that needs to get cured faster because of the fill. I'm guessing that's where it'll be more critical, but the whole team, the contractor, the structural engineers, they're trying to get the whole thing to hopefully work out and get that factor of safety. It'll be lower, but per code, it'll be acceptable. Yes.
1: Matthew, my final question for you really has to do with uh, non destructive testing, which I read about a little bit in some of the research that we've seen from you. And my question to you is when is it necessary to use it on the job site? And what methods would we be using and why?
2: So let me start with the traditional destructive testing method, which is you go out, core the concrete, kind of make your own cylinder from the in situ concrete and break it and know pretty darn accurately hey, the concrete is this strength because we took the core right out of the concrete. But that's kind of costly on a money side and can cause delays. I guess a lot of the other methods can cause delays as well. But um, then you have a hole in your concrete, you get to patch with grout. And if it's in an area trying to make the concrete face look pretty, it's not going to look pretty anymore with a pore that's been patched with grout. So then we have some, I guess we call them non-destructive, but they're generally like low to moderately destructive. For instance, we have uh, Windsor probes. A lot of times contractors and concrete suppliers want to just run out there and uh, use Windsor probes. It's uh, basically a charge that shoots a nail into the concrete and you measure the penetration of the nail and relate that back to a concrete strength. However, to do it for the ASTM, there's several sets of cores that you relate to several sets of Windsor probes to make your own correlation. And then you can use the Windsor probes really anywhere for that mix to find the concrete strength. A lot of times contractors or concrete suppliers just want to shoot Windsor probes and relate that to kind of an existing correlation that's not standard for the mix that was used. We typically, when we're doing the Windsor probes, require the, them to be done per the ASTM. The structural engineers sometimes are more comfortable with not requiring the use of the letter of the ASTM, and they, they rely on the manufacturer's correlations for those Windsor probes and depth of penetration slightly destructive, you end up with a a bit of a pit where that nail is, but just put some spackle on it and move on. We have rebound hammers as well. That's probably the least destructive method, which is used primarily for comparison. You measure the, kind of get a rough measurement of the elasticity of the concrete with the rebound hammer. And you can compare that to areas of known strength. So if you have cylinders or cores from one area that you know the strength, you can then go rebound hammer, those areas, and then relate that to other areas where you're trying to investigate what the strength of the in-situ concrete is. There's an ultrasonic pulse velocity test method, which that's more of a a modulus measurement where you have a pulser and you measure the time the wave takes to transverse the concrete, a certain length of concrete. On this one, you need relatively pristine concrete because cracks and voids will slow the wave and throw off your correlation. But that's what you're doing is you're kind of correlating the wave velocity to the modulus of the concrete and then correlating the modulus of the concrete to the strength of the concrete. So you need a knowledgeable structural engineer to be able to make those correlations accurately and to be comfortable with them. Again, it doesn't directly measure the strength of the concrete. It's more of a correlation.
0: Is there one that's kind of like the go-to in terms of, Hey, this is if someone was asking for a non-destructive test, is there one that you prefer?
2: Windsor probes are usually the go-to. There are a lot of structural engineers that have some level of comfort with not requiring the full ASTM set, which is several sets of cores and several sets of Windsor probes just to make a correlation, and then you can go back and do your probes in the areas you want to investigate. So at that point, unless it's a large area, you would just core the area you wanted to investigate. But a lot of times the structural engineer is fine with just Windsor probes and the manufacturer's data on a correlation for concrete strength. I haven't seen firsthand the uh, ultrasonic pulse velocity method or the impact hammer method. Though so I have used this, I guess, impact hammer testing on piles, but it's a little different where you're just kind of checking the structural integrity of the pile. To, it should, I guess, go down through the concrete and bounce off the bottom pile and come back up with uh, without encountering any voids. But that's not so much strength as it is integrity of the pile.
0: Matthew, one of our last questions is, I know there's a lot of testing, the typical testing, but what are some additional testing methods that for concrete that may be a little more less common but are are still used or are viable.
2: There's one method I haven't mentioned that's still in the ASTM that uh, it's a post-installed pullout where you'll kind of install an anchor at a certain depth of the concrete and then you can install some uh, ballasts so that the concrete will fail between the, the ballast and the anchor and you pull out the anchor and based on that pullout strength, you can correlate it to a concrete strength. It makes kind of a, a cone little pullout a section as you can measure the surface area of that cone to find uh or interpret a concrete strength based on the pull up force across that surface area a couple hiccups on this one are it's it's more of a complex failure mechanism it's not a straight shear failure the surface of the failure may go around the aggregate as opposed to through the aggregate and so it's not not exactly a, an extremely clean test to perform um, it does seem relatively simple if you see it on paper, just install an anchor, pull out, you know, measure the surface area of the failure and there's your strength. That's not quite that simple.
1: Matthew. So before we close out, can you share with us a little bit, some career insights or wisdom that you'd want to share with our audience?
2: I had uh, one comment that stuck with me since the beginning of my engineering career and that your job pays you twice. Once is with money and once is with experience. And If you feel like you're you know, stuck on one or the other, maybe time to see if you can shift positions within your company or look for a new job. Once you stop learning, then you're you're starting to stagnate in your career. So make sure your job's getting you experience al- along with compensating you properly.
1: Thank you so much for that insight. I really appreciate that. I think that's a really valuable way to look at your time in, in a role and in a position is that you should be compensated, not only uh, to make your life go around <laughs> the money that makes life happen, but also that you should be fulfilled from an educational and knowledge perspective and that you should continuously be growing. So thank you for that. Thank you. Thanks for coming on with us today, Matthew. Pleasure having you.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: We hope you enjoyed the episode today. We'd love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. To leave them, please visit StructuralEngineeringChannel.com. There you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, which is episode number 43, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. Also, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, we wish you the best in all of your structural engineering endeavors. The Structural Engineering Channel podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the hosts and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineering professionals, Visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.